In episode 413 with Dr. Cameron Chesnut, we're going to be speaking about how to reverse gray hair. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, it's 100% possible. And not only that, we're going to show you how in this episode, as well as heaps of incredible anti-aging tips. Let's get into it. The Melissa Welcome to the Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best-selling author of Mastering Your Mean Girl and Open Wide. And I'm here to remind you that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Each week, I'll be getting up close and personal with thought leaders from around the globe, as well as your weekly dose of motivation so that you can create epic change in your own life and become the best version of yourself possible. Ready, beautiful? Guess what, my beautiful friend? My fourth book, Comparisonitis How to Stop Comparing Yourself to Others and Be Genuinely Happy, is out right now. Number one New York Times best selling author and social media sensation Jay Shetty said, Never before has a book been more needed. Future generations will thank Melissa for shining a spotlight on comparisonitis. And multiple New York Times bestselling author Gabby Bernstein said, Since Melissa refers to people who have recovered from comparisonitis as unicorns, I suppose that makes this a sort of unicorn training manual. I'm so grateful that such a manual has arrived. It's been infinitely helpful to me. Head to comparisonitis.com or Amazon to get your copy today. We have just had Leo, who's my 15-year-old bonus son, with us for a month. And when he's with us, I love fueling his body with as much nutrients as I possibly can. This is why I love Athletic Greens. Now, every morning when he walks out into the kitchen, there's a large glass of room temperature filtered water with his Athletic Greens, which is his daily all-in-one superfood powder in it. He loves it and I love knowing that not only is he starting his day with hydration and green goodness, but that he's getting any vitamins and minerals that he may be missing in his diet. Best of all, he loves the taste, which is so awesome. And just one scoop contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood blend, and more that all work together to fill the nutritional gaps in your diet, increase your energy and focus, aid with digestion and support a healthy immune system, all without the need to take multiple products, which is perfect for anyone. Another thing I love about Athletic Greens is they continue to obsessively improve this one holistic formula based on the latest research, producing 53 iterations over the last decade. They invest in the most absorbable and natural source of each ingredient and go above and beyond in third-party testing to ensure that their customers continue to receive the highest quality and the best daily nutritional habit on the planet. And it's lifestyle-friendly, whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, gluten-free, and contains less than one gram of sugar without compromising on taste. And right now, Athletic Greens is doubling down on supporting your immune system by offering you a free year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase, which means you'll basically never have to buy vitamin D ever again. All you have to do is head to athleticgreens.com forward slash Melissa to get your free year supply of vitamin D and your five free travel packs today. How awesome is that? 
Welcome back to the show, guys. This is Nick Broadhurst, your guest host and Melissa's husband, stepping in while Melissa is on maternity leave, taking care of our little goddess angel, cute little bundle of joy. Now, today, this is a super cool episode. I'm not lying to you guys. This is the bee's freaking knees of anti-aging. I got so much out of this episode and I wanted to focus on gray hair and we definitely focused on that. Trust me, we go so deep into gray hair and how it works, why it happens, what's your body telling you, how to reverse it. It is amazing. And we also go into a whole bunch of stuff around gut health and home hacks for anti-aging and how to reverse early onset balding, how to have better skin, facial skin, what are the best treatments, what's most effective. (sighs) So much guys in this episode. And not only that, Dr. Chesnut is probably the best example of the new generation of modernly trained international surgeons. He has charted a solid, intelligent course, innovating and progressing new techniques while showing an uncanny aptitude to maximize his patients' outcomes with minimally invasive approaches. His fellowship at UCLA featured a rigorous, full integration of plastic surgery, facial plastic surgery, oculoplastic surgery, and dermatologic surgery. Through his one-of-a-kind integration, Dr. Chesnut has become an exceptionally well-rounded and cross-pollinated surgeon with an unparalleled expertise in cosmetic surgery, reconstructive surgery, hair restoration, as well as laser and aesthetic dermatology. Go and check out on social media the little snippet we post of this episode. And he stayed up super late for this one up until like 11 o'clock at night. So we're very, very grateful for Cameron's time. And there is just so much in this episode. I just don't even know where to start. So the best place to start is, well, at the beginning. So let's dive in, guys. I can't wait to hear what you think of this. Oh, so good. Cameron, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Thanks so much. So the most important question I have for you today is, what did you have for breakfast this morning? Ooh, this morning I fasted until lunchtime, and then I had a little salad that my wife put together for me. I was did a big surgery this morning and finished at about 2 p.m. and went and had that salad. I was thinking about it towards the end of the case. It was good. So are we doing this at 9 p.m. your time because you've got young kids and it's currently, they're asleep. Is that why we're doing it? <laughs> I literally just tucked them in, just put them <laughs> in bed. So it's, uh, you know, they're upstairs, I'm downstairs enjoying myself and my relaxed time. Beautiful. I have a little one yeah. sleeping downstairs right now as well. It's a good thing. I'm excited to talk about a lot of anti-aging stuff today with you. And actually what you didn't have for breakfast is a good way to segue into something because often on this show, when I ask this question, a very common response is nothing. You know, they're doing some form of intermittent fasting in your experience, in your practice. Is this something you recommend to people for the benefits of anti-aging for appearance? Can you talk to us a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. There's some, you know, really great benefits for intermittent fasting when we're talking about sort of anti-aging and cellular autophagy and things like that. And that can have some big implications when you're talking about hair, anti-aging certainly in cells that turn over really quickly in our skin. That's sort of one of our classic uh, tissues that has a really high turnover rate. We think of skin and gut and things like that. And so Certainly anything that causes that autophagy and can kind of clean up is really going to be great for our skin. That's why, you know, some things in our infrared saunas have some similar benefits too, not just because it's the organ that gets most exposed, but also just, you know, it has that sort of high turnover rate. 
hair is a little bit different. Hair is such a rich, dense source of stem cells for us. Our hair follicles and our skin, we consider our hair follicles what we call like an appendage of our skin, right? They're just sort of a substructure within it. And so, so many different types of stem cells live in there. The stem cells that make our hair, the stem cells that add pigment to the hair. And so a lot of those cells can have benefit from, you know, some sort of version of time-restricted eating, definitely. Yes, I'm curious with the opposite of time-restricted eating, which would be eating too much, for example. So I'll just use me as a personal example, right? So as a man, I like to train and work out and maintain a level of muscle mass and probably grew up thinking that there wasn't enough food around and I had to eat way too much to maintain my mass. I feel like it's a very, very common story for a lot of men. It's something which I've personally had to work on over the years because, I don't know, somewhere along the line, I was led to believe that I had to eat so much to maintain my mass, right? And I keep thinking to myself, and I've definitely improved, but I keep thinking if I have a really big dinner, I never feel great. I don't sleep as well, which obviously it impacts melatonin. But are we, because I assume most people listening to this probably eat more calories than we need, right, to, to survive. Is there some sort of inflammatory process that that could be kicking off that can be contributing to rapid aging of some sort? Yeah, as a man, this is an important question too. This gets into a bunch of different avenues that we can go down. You know, when we start thinking of, again, talking about muscle mass and overeating, you know, any cellular deposition is creating more adipocytes, right? More fat cells. And men, especially, uh, fat cells create estrogen, right? So that can change our inflammatory cascades, our sex hormones, our hair, all kinds of things like that. And so, yeah, you can have big implications from that. And then on the flip side of that, just sort of, okay, well, we're talking about eating too much of what are we eating? Sort of what types of things may be pro-inflammatory? Are we eating hydrogenated oils and things like that that can have some serious uh, cell membrane issues? And of course, that too can significantly contribute to our aging profile. And there's some thoughts going forward as far as like what these different types of oils in our cell membranes can do to our cellular like photosensitivity when we're talking about UVA, UVB, UVC rays from the sun, things like that. And so you know, what your baseline antioxidant state is, is affected, of course, by what you eat, what your exercise level is, how your overall health is. And, you know, so it really gets down to, yeah, your diet can significantly have an implication on, let's call it just your cosmetic aging process, in addition to sort of those internal cellular levels of things that we're seeing. It's just a reflection of what's happening inside a lot of times. So important, isn't it? I want to speak about that in a minute in relation to gray hair. But it just reminded me of something, speaking about fats. Now, it just popped into my head that maybe two years ago, I heard a podcast. I can't remember her name, but she was speaking about gray hair and how she has helped patients of hers reverse gray hair by eating about a cupful of mixed nuts with salt a day. What is that all about? Something to do with electron transfer or something? I can't remember. It was something like that. Yeah. So again, going back to sort of the baseline roots of what's creating the, the pigment in our hair is these are stem cells that are making melanin, right? Melanin is the pigment in our skin, but it also gets put directly in our hair shafts. And so not to get too basic science but a hair shaft has all kinds of different colors in it. And black hair has lots of melanin, blonde hair has less. And then we think of graying hair, but graying hair actually has a big spectrum too. You have silver. And when we think of like a hair that has no pigment whatsoever, it's almost like this clear white. Think of like a polar bear. Polar bear has sort of clear hair, right? And so, you know, getting all the way down into, you know, what's happening at those different levels. Yeah. Electron transport chains is having a bunch to do with our mitochondria, right? How our mitochondria are functioning. Uh, those are the energy cells and these are hair in general, but especially the pigment in our hair is a really high metabolic demand type of tissue. It's quick to be sort of discarded or gotten rid of when things get tough, right? And so 
anything that has to do with sort of mitochondrial health, which is where the electron transport chain comes in. But then very specifically, when we're talking about the types of fats that we're eating, we always think about that with our skin and our skin appendages. And when we want those like nice monounsaturated fats that are coming from nuts and, you know, vegetable, avocado, things like that. And so that's where she's talking about. That's a pretty bold claim that, you know, mixed nuts and salt is going <laughs> to cure gray hair. But, you know, it kind of probably depends on, well, what kind of gray are we talking about? Are we talking about just barely over that gray spectrum and you pushed them back in towards blonde? Or what, what does that mean, really? So to take a white hair, a clear hair to black right. is a huge spectrum change. You know, it's a big shift. So it's a really interesting question, though. Can that be done? Can you take a full, you know, almost transparent gray hair back? That can be done, can it? Yeah, it can be done. And so, again, it all depends on what that underlying mechanism is. On a really extreme example of this that happens all the time is there's an autoimmune disease called vitiligo. And that autoimmune disease, our own sort of immune system is recognizing these pigment cells, these melanocytes or melanosomes as foreign, and it attacks them, right? And so as it attacks them, you've seen people that have like maybe white patches of skin kind of interspersed. It can be on your you know fingers and toes and your face anywhere. But hairs experience that same thing, right? So they'll go stark white, no pigment whatsoever completely devoid. And there's various mechanisms to do this, but you can sort of calm down that immune response, get those pigment cells to turn back on, and they'll completely repigment themselves, go black again, even if that's what they were before. And as a very extreme example of a disease process, it does demonstrate that even when these cells are senescent, being shut down, being repressed, stopped, they still have the capacity to make this pigment if re-stimulated later on, which is really important when we're talking about hair growth, gray hair, things like that. Mm. It never ceases to amaze me what the body can actually do. You know, I think we, we just don't give it enough credit. And coming back to what you said before about our outside being a reflection of our inside, I've been curious about gray hair because I've noticed personally, just even in, you know, daily interactions with people, it seems to me that especially women are getting the occasional gray hair a lot earlier than I remember growing up as young. Maybe I'm just paying more attention now, but it seems like it's very young, you know, late 20s, early 30s, women having to color their hair. Now, I think it's also important to preface this conversation that we're talking about a very, I don't want to say a shallow thing when we're talking about hair color. It's not. Uh, what I'm trying to dig into here is what is that a sign of? Like, What's that a reflection of inside us? Because I always talk about the body being our messenger, right? If the body's hurting somewhere or red somewhere or lost pigment or it's gone gray, what are we missing? What's the communication we're not picking up on? And with gray hair, I've been curious about that because I don't have gray hair and you know, I don't know many men my age who don't have some gray hair. So something I'm doing is working, right? So what if you do have it, what is the body communicating? Yeah. So, you know, graying is going to be, like I said, on that spectrum of as we're kind of going through the, the color process. And generally, when we're talking about graying, we're talking about something going from hair that has pigment noticeably to separating away from that. And when that happens and where that happens, have the strongest part of that is a genetic predisposition, right? It tends to run in families and run in locations. Actually, temples, the part of our you know scalp that we call the temple, is named that way because that tends to be the first part that we gray. Like temple has a you know root that goes back to like tiempo time, and so this kind of is reflected as like well, our first. That's a fun fact. One of my fellows taught me a few years ago, but it kind of goes back into that idea of you know our the area being the first place to gray. And then having that strong genetic predisposition, like what's causing it to happen. But if we get down to more of like a cellular level, it is, it's a, a slowing of the regenerative capacity of our stem cells, of our melanosomes, of our melanocytes that are making that pigment. 
as they slow down, they can't make pigment quite quickly enough. They start to slow in certain areas. Um, it gets reflected. And it's really interesting to me that it'll be like a single hair that's, you know, graying in a sea of dark hair, right? So it's that sort of one follicle that kind of crosses that threshold where we're picking up that little light reflection different on the hair follicle. And so it's just that slowing of that process. And again, knowing those stem cells are still fully functional to do what they need to do if being properly stimulated, if having the right sort of uh, environment around them, but they themselves, something is slowing them down. So that's when you get to the level below that is, okay, well, what's stimulating hair growth? And that's where sex hormones come in, growth factors, things like that from the rest of us that's signaling those changes to happen in the first place. And we know that those sex hormones play a huge role in hair growth. And we think about the other major process that happens with our hair as we age, which is just first like thinning. And thinning, we always think of hair loss, but actually the first thing that happens is the calibers of our hair shrink for the same reason that they gray, they get thinner, and that creates an effectively lower density of hairs that we have before we start losing them and they go away. So before a hair ever fall, falls out and is gone, it is quite miniaturized first. And both of those processes are just running in parallel to one another. Graying hair, you know, parallels thinning hair, parallels miniaturized hair, parallel, or, you know, parallels hairs that we no longer have. So all of them run in process. Now, why somebody maybe doesn't have any gray hair, um, again, probably goes back to a bunch of genetics, goes back to what your baseline inflammatory state is, where your signaling and energy are going. If you have like, you know, when things are good, right, all of our cells are getting the energy that they need. They're getting the attention. We're going to have great hair growth. But as things get a little bit tougher, environments change, growth factor milieus change, you're going to notice those changes happening. And hair is going to be one of the first pieces of tissue or one of the first areas that are going to be sort of like throttled back on like budget cuts. It's going to go first, you know, because it's high metabolic demand and it's not essential to our survival quite as much. Mm. A really interesting area that a really interesting area. This iPhone that, is so interesting. Yeah, one area that you notice it on people a lot, like getting away from the head is like leg hairs. You know, if you look at people who are aging, they tend to sort of have this gradient of leg hair kind of coming up their leg towards their knees where they're losing those hairs. Um, and that's all based off metabolic demand. As we get more distal in our blood flow and circulation, it doesn't get as much energy and those hair follicles shut down, go to sleep. They don't, they're not needed anymore. Oh, wow. That is so interesting because I'm just straight away thought of someone I know who has yeah, hair, which is non-existent on his calves. Right. And just kind of starts very faintly at his knees and then gets thicker. And I was always wondering, is he shaving his legs? Or yeah, like, right. He's an older gentleman, but that is so interesting. And so you mentioned circulation then. So what role then does, say, the lymphatic system have in that? Yeah. So this can get in the weeds a little bit. In our legs, the lymphatic system is one of the key factors of what's happening there, right? Because it's peripheral vascular resistance causing more edema in the legs. That swelling creates some changes in the microvascular circulation around our hair follicles. They shut down, they go to sleep. And that gradient, just like as you're seeing in your friend or the person you're thinking of, starts kind of creeping up. So lymphatic there is huge. When we get to our scalp, where we have sort of a pro-gravitational state where gravity is pulling down a little bit more, it's not as much of an issue up there. That's where you get into issues of microvascular circulation that may be sort of the opposite, where actually the gravitational force on our scalp over time causes some microvascular changes in our fat cells, which are where our, our hair follicles live inside of our fat cells. They're bathed by this high energy, you know, fat tissue that gives them the energy they need to function. And as that fat layer decreases or shrinks or gets thinner, uh, the hair follicles kind of lose some of their structural support and their energetic support. And it usually reflects a change in the circulation that feeds those hair follicles, which can lead to graying and thinning, things like that. Mm. So with 
Actually, before I go there, I want to ask you a genetic question then, because I'm just thinking to my father, his mother. I remember when she was in her 80s, I can barely remember any gray hairs on her head. When she passed away at 96, she was kind of salt and pepper, you know, not fully gray. My, my father had a full head. My father has a full head of hair. He had very black hair, now mixed gray and black, and he's 80 this year. Are there specific genetics that give you a better chance of having less gray hair? Yeah, it's a multi-genetic issue that goes on. But in general, yes, you're sort of what's happening with your melanosomes, with your pigment cells and the genetics behind those pigment cells, that's going to determine a lot of it. So like you're saying where, you know, my grandma has a 93-year-old grandfather, same thing, still has like mostly brown or dark brown hair with some salt and pepper. And it's sort of like, no, grandpa, what are you doing? How, how does this happen? And a lot of it is sort of like where your baseline is when you have that really, really dark hair, you're further on the spectrum to graying anyway. So you're going to go through dark black, light black, dark brown, light brown. So you just kind of have a little bit more cushion, right? So you'll find that people with black, black, black hair tend to kind of gray a little bit slower, usually. And, you know, then beyond that, you get into a bunch of genetics of it's more, it's actually more related to pigment cells than it is to hair when we're talking about graying specifically. So if you're blonde, does that mean you're more likely to gray faster than a brunette? Yes. So this is an interesting thing. So you'll gray faster because you're going to be close. Every, all of us are going to lose pigment in our hair. You know, it's just part of that cellular slowing. But as you get, you're going to cross that threshold sooner. The sort of flip side of that, though, is that it's less of a contrast generally, right? That person who has black hair with a few salt and peppers in there, you're going to notice that just from a, you know, sort of a juxtaposition a bit more than someone who's blonde and sort of lightly starting to lose pigment in those. It's just not as dramatic usually. So coming back to circulation then, because I think this is something which is probably one of the easier things I assume to address because we can all improve our circulation with some basic stuff. What would be, I guess, even just some baseline things people should be doing daily or weekly to improve circulation? Right. So let's talk about just like scalp and hair with this, since maybe that's one of our main topics that we can kind of stick to. And you know, on a pharmacologic level, which a lot of people don't want to go to or think about, but with hair, we know that there's this medication called minoxidil or Rogaine or whatever we want to call it that works for hair growth to a certain degree. It has like a cap that works. It may have a 5% sort of improvement or 10% improvement in hair growth. And it is just a vasodilator. It's just improving the microcirculation to our scalp. So that one simple thing, you know, it reaches a cap though. And so as we get into maybe a little bit of a supplement discussion or all these little mechanisms, we have to realize that, yes, they can all have improvements, but when they're all targeting the same thing, circulation, microcirculation, it's going to reach a cap at which sort of, you know, you get to a point of diminishing returns a little bit. So some other proposed mechanisms to improve blood flow to the hair follicles have been just like some, even it's like basic manual massage, right? Just like getting your fingers on there and rubbing uh, can show some improvements in microvascular circulation. My favorite one, as somebody who likes to invert in my yoga swing every once in a while, you know, I, I try to get in there on every day, but is, you know, that inversion causes some vasodilation and some increased blood flow in your hair. But then also with this idea of the gravitational force of our scalp contributing some to, you know, with thinning of that adipose layer, the fatty layer, you get some relief against that too. So a friend of mine who's a big biohacker kind of joke, yeah, you just get up fast and get upside down in your yoga swing all day and your hair will just keep growing longer and longer from all the blood flow that you know, you're getting and from that tension relief that comes on it. A lot of things that we'll see for hair growth when we're talking about supplements or sort of these manual devices, even like um, 
low-level light therapy. People call it laser therapy, but low-level light at a real like cellular mechanism is causing vasodilation, right? Nitric oxide release or something like that. These are like these laser helmets that people may have seen for hair growth. It's a vasodilation thing. It's just causing improvement in circulation to the area. So I always get that question like, are those like laser helmets? Do they help? It's like, well, yeah, to, to some small degree, they certainly can help, which is really interesting. So vasodilation, does that mean we should be having a glass of beetroot juice every day or? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's not going to hurt, right? That's, that's exactly what we're after. <laughs> you got we, you know, you always think of like, you know, niacin or something that's causing this big sort of systemic flush vasodilation, but you know, you think of the systemic effects, but uh, when we're talking about hair follicles, certainly it's not an issue of, you know, getting any improvement in the circulation is going to help it. Yeah. It's funny. I think I've had somewhat of a slight insecurity about one part of my head. I think almost subconscious, but as you get older, you start thinking, oh, I hope that doesn't like get thinner. But I look at my dad, he's got a full head of hair and we still have the exact same hair pattern. So I know that I'm sweet. It's just that at the back of the head where it sort of turns around, it just naturally is a bit thinner, right? All right. But it's been the same for like for my whole life. So I shouldn't stress about it, but I haven't ever really like really rubbed it. And just recently there's a company called Omit, O-M-I-T. They talk about emitting the bad stuff out of the hair products. And they've got a, uh, a spray, which is a growth spray. And they sent it to me and it included a brush. And the brush has these big rubber sort of spikes on it. And it feels so good to massage that into my hair. Like if I wash my hair or condition or use the grow spray, I go to town on that thing. And now I've got no, no fear whatsoever. I rub the hell out of it. Largely because I heard your interview on Ben Greenfield's show, who's been on the show as well, talking a lot about, I think someone mentioned rubbing butter or something like that and you, you said exactly i think it, right. was, it was probably more the rubbing than the butter itself that's exactly right yep yeah i thought that was a really fun little uh you know vignette of someone rubbing butter you know they were a, at a monastery or something rubbing butter and it made their hair grow <laughs> but you know the rubber device you're describing is is exactly that you know it's the same idea and you know everything you're describing of the like you know that vertex crown area being that first area that everybody's concerned about you know where we thin first you know it's all pretty spot on and it's interesting because, you know, as guys, women too, as we get into our 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, as we start getting that thinning, because we all do to some degree, it's interesting as you pay more attention or pay less attention, just where we start realizing as we're crossing those thresholds to thinning. Because for most people, we can thin or lose quite a bit of our hair before we even notice it, right? And then all arbitrarily we'll cross the threshold that we pick up on. And after that point, it just is so much more obvious. And there's a lot of theories on this as far as how that density happens, but uh, we seem to have this built-in tolerance in our brains and our social awareness of what we don't pick up on. And then all of a sudden, once somebody crosses that, it, it tends to be something that registers a little bit. We have this all over our face and our eyes and our mouth and things like that too, as far as symmetry and tolerance for picking up. The hair definitely has that built-in sort of area that's like, oh, we don't even notice if you're 100% or 65% dense, no problem. But all of a sudden you get to 64 or 63 and we click and we can kind of like hone in on it. And especially, this is a really common with guys who are looking at themselves, they see a picture of themselves swimming or something and they're like, and I'm getting a bald spot on the back of my head. It's like, well, hold on. Let's you know take a look at what you look like on a daily basis before when your hair is dry and things like that. I want to encourage people to do a Google search or go to Melissa's website and have a look at Cameron because <laughs> you know what you always say, like if you're going to take health advice, take it from someone who looks the way you want to look, right? And dude, you're looking good. 
You look good. Well, You're a handsome hey, man. <laughs> thank you, man. I appreciate that. So, yeah, thanks. Appreciate From that one, very much. One bro to another, you know. I can appreciate yeah, I like that. You looking good. Yeah, I like it. A little virtual fist bump. Thanks. You Absolutely. too. <laughs> <laughs> Coming back to focusing on women for a second. At my son's high school, it's a very, let's say, it's a very affluent high school, and there are many gazillionaire people who go who send their kids to school there and i often heard in the playground the women speaking about alopecia and it was this big thing like oh yeah and all of them like there was i remember this clear like maybe three or four times i heard different people speaking about it but there was once there was five women standing in a group and they all were dealing with alopecia at that point in time so can you explain alopecia what it is and is there a correlation between that and potential gray hearing? Because I'm assuming they probably all had their hair colored as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, alopecia is the general term we use in medicine for just hair loss. Okay. Uh, and so it's a general sort of overall term. There's one specific type of alopecia that is called alopecia areata, and that is a focal sort of patched alopecia that a lot of people can get. That one is actually has that was a it. pretty... That was the one. Yeah, that one has a pretty significant link to, let's just call it environment in general, uh, stress even, something being very significant, a stressful event causing alopecia. And, and that's not the only stress-tied hair event, but that one is can be very focal, but it's considered autoimmune as well for the most part, where our immune cells there, instead of recognizing the pigment or hair follicles, are recognizing the hair follicle itself causing it to shut down. And so you can get patches and it ranges from like little focal areas. It can be in your beard and your scalp anywhere to complete hair loss, like, you know, only eyebrows or no eyebrows, no body hair whatsoever. And we call those like alopecia areata, alopecia totalis, universalis, like whatever it may be. But a really great example of some external environmental things, stress, autoimmunity, and things that can be reversible and completely, you know, that, that hair has the potential to grow completely back when it's sort of managed. Traditional management can be like anti-inflammatories and things like that, but, you know, lifestyle modification and things like that definitely play a role as well. And then even just injecting local growth factors, this very um, holistic biohacking type of thing, PRP, basically platelet rich plasma that we can get, you know, from your own blood shows really strong benefit in treating something like alopecia areata. So supplements then if we could talk about supplements for a second because i did some research coming into this i was curious to see what's out there uh, i've never really thought about a you know taking a supplement specifically for graying hair but one slightly more fringe one that i came across is from a company called c360 which you might be aware of and i guess you call it a supplement because they they do sell c60 in olive oil but they also sell a hair growth serum as well and an activator I find the whole topic of C60 so interesting, and it's definitely a bit of a buzzword. Are you familiar with that? Is it something you can talk to and explain to the audience? Yeah. So, I mean, C60 is a really interesting topic. It functions via a similar mechanism of what we were talking about a little bit a second ago as far as uh, playing into what the inflammatory cascades are, microcirculation, things like that around our hair follicles. And, you know, C60 kind of looks like a soccer ball, you know, on a molecular level. It's a really interesting little molecule. But when we get into talking about what its benefits potentially may be, that's where we get into where there's just not a lot of evidence or any sort of specific studies sort of looking at that or nothing that's like big and strong. You know, you get into sort of like some more proposed mechanisms and things like that maybe for it. We talked about Ben Greenfield a second ago, who's, a you know, done a whole podcast on that particular sort of molecule. And, you know, it's very intriguing and certainly has a lot of like proposed and sort of like 
extrapolated types of benefits that it may have for hair loss, but nothing that's like tying specifically into like, look at, look at what this can do for hair loss. But, you know, it's all with someone who has alopecia areata. That's where you start thinking like, well, you know, I don't want to be using sort of a systemic immunosuppressant or anti-inflammatory or something like that. It's where something like C60 may have a role uh, to help somebody like that. Is it something you personally would have in your cupboard? Because I actually do have the C60 product by C360 and I do take it every day and I wonder which of my things are working? You know, like <laughs> right. what, what's having, what's moving the needle here? Exactly. That, when you have a lot of factors playing into it, it always gets into like, you know, where's the benefit? Like you said, you're not having any gray hair. What's the underlying thing? I don't personally take it. It's not something that I recommend to my patients on a regular basis, sort of for those reasons that we just explained. And, you know, as we get into, you know, sort of what some of the options may be, we have some really, really simple, safe, easy, autologous from you, reliable things that work well, especially if we're talking about hair. And so it tend, those tend to trump sort of what something like C60 may be able to offer on a local level when we're talking about, you know, hair regeneration, hair growth, graying, and things like that. Well, let's definitely go there soon. I wanted to ask you about some more supplements. And there's one that was really popular online and it had a whole bunch of ingredients. One was saw palmetto, which apparently is a natural DHT blocker. They had biotin for moisture in the hair, apparently. Zinc, which I guess that's a bit of a no-brainer. And horsetail, which I find interesting because I used to make horsetail tea 10 years ago because I was aware of the high silica content. Folic acid, copper, pantothenic acid, nettle root, L-tyrosine, and foti root, which is, a, I think, a traditional Chinese medicine herb, and a few other bits and pieces. Anything there standing out that sounds interesting? Literally all of them in some capacity. You know, biotin is a very classic one. For example, you mentioned that, you know, it has a lot of implications with nails, uh, hair being one of those, you know, sort of like appendages of our skin as well. Copper is a really hot one all over the map. You know, copper is really important for collagen formation. You mentioned zinc. So, my general sort of stance on these supplements, and you know, you mentioned, you know, Salpometto, a DHT blocker. So when you start looking at like all of these different sort of structural elements that can go into the entire process of the hair shaft itself, of hair growth, of the hormonal level that's stimulating that hair, it's really when you kind of want to step back and say, what is the root cause of maybe what the hair loss is, right? Is it a DHT issue? Is it sort of this androgen paradox that men seem to get? Is it something that's an actual nutritional deficiency? You know, are you not methylating your folate well? So do you need like a 5-methyl tetrahydrofolate or something that can play into sort of what's happening at your, your cellular level that can do that? And, you know, when we have someone who has sort of persistent hair loss and it's not just some slam dunk, you know, patterned alopecia, you know, like a male pattern or female pattern, um, it's really worth sometimes kind of looking at a cellular level as what's happening. And that can happen with some simple lab tests, it can happen with some genetic testing. When you do that, and you can elucidate a cause, something simple like the folate thing that I just mentioned, like it's, it's like this epiphany, it's like, it's this very simple thing, I need to take a different type of folate, you know, and I can improve a bunch of my cellular mechanisms, one of which being my hair growth, you know, dropping my homocysteine levels, getting cardio protected. And so that's where, you know, I said your externals can be a reflection of your internal. Sometimes it can be some very simple little genetic, you know, you're a heterozygote for your tetrahydrofolate receptor or something, you know. And so when you see these really shotgunned sort of supplements, it's like the question is like, well, it's probably not going to hurt, right? But are any of them hitting something that's actually pertinent to sort of what's happening with you or where you're at, you know? So I love all those particular ideas, but I just kind of like to, I'm a believer that 
defining the problem gets you halfway to the solution. And this is a really prime example of that, where let's define the problem. What's actually happening in your hair? Let's not get theoretical. Let's look at what may be going on. But once we have that, we usually have a pretty simple solution as to what that is or what sort of best options that might be ahead of us. Mm, that's a good point. I will link to that in the show notes of this episode, that particular supplement, because it looks interesting. It's covering, covering a lot of ground. It is, yeah. Something that came to mind for me is glutathione. You know, obviously our body's ability to detoxify. And just recently, uh, maybe three or four months ago, I started taking an amino acid product, amino acid supplement based off that master amino pattern, the ratio of amino acids. And I've got to tell you, it's been one of the most significant things I've ever taken in my life for kind of everything. I feel like my entire system is stronger as well as putting on muscle mass very quickly. But of course, what's interesting from that is glutathione is made from amino acids. So is our body's ability to detox also tied to gray hair, balding? Does that play a role? Absolutely, yeah. And so on a, you know, as you get into sort of the amino acid profile, this is another great example of like, is there an actual deficiency? Is it a ratio something, a ratio issue that may be happening? Uh, because it's not, you know, glutathione's created by amino acids, all of our proteins are, right? So what sort of may be changing in there or what may be missing or what may not be optimized with what our amino acid profile is or the ratios are. And yeah, those sort of like pro-inflammatory situations absolutely have an effect on graying and hair thinning and hair loss. And, you know, we know that on all kinds of levels, whether it's some extreme example of chemotherapy that may be a pro-oxidative chemotherapy that just causes grain or causes, of course, complete hair loss that we all sort of know and think about. But lots of sort of acute stressors and acute illnesses and things like that can trigger changes in our hair structure, color, loss. Sometimes that loss is temporary and it grows back sort of like a shock loss. It's called a telogen effluvium is the actual name for that. But that can all be affected by sort of what's happening on small systemic levels, let alone sort of big ones. I'm glad you said that because it reminds me of something I wanted to mention was before my little daughter was born, I did a 30-day juice fast, which sounds, I know that sounds pretty extreme and it is, it's pretty extreme. And I started it with no particular time frame in mind. And I've been asked so much to do a podcast on this juice fast and I'm contemplating it, but it's it was so much more than a juice fast. It was like a spiritual assignment in the end. It was incredibly challenging, but it's very catabolic, right? And my hair thinned considerably during that and was breaking, snapping. So the catabolic process, the anabolic process, can you talk to that a bit? Absolutely. Yeah. And so you, I hinted at this a little bit earlier, what you just hit on, which is, you know, our hair is really high metabolic demand and it takes a lot of micronutrients. It takes all those amino acids we just talked about to kind of create sort of the structure of it. And, you know, when you have a 30-day period where you have some fasting, you know, one thing we always, this is one of my interesting, maybe call it a peeve, but something where you look at somebody who's had, you know, thinning hair, and then they've been treating with something for four weeks or something, and all of a sudden they have all this brand new thick hair. Well, we know that our hair grows about this far in, you know, 30 days, right? So only this much of what's sticking out of your scalp is reflecting sort of that juice fast for you. But that's where that fragility can come in. You have this big, long, you have long hair, right? So you have this big, long hair that's breaking off at the base, just reflecting like it, you're not getting your structural uh, integrity built into your hair because your body's in shock. Your body is trying to conserve its energy where it can conserve those micronutrients and macronutrients to like put them in other places. Your hair just becomes sort of an afterthought a little bit. It's really interesting where 
the rest of your hair shaft is unchanged. It's structurally set. It's there. And it's this like sort of base of it that starts to thin down, get weak, and it breaks off. Uh, and then, you know, like you're saying, it, it's as it thins, it eventually it just kind of shuts down and says, you know, I'm, this is not needed right now. There's more important things to attend to. I literally remember day 21. I woke up day 21. <laughs> I looked at, I was staying in an Airbnb in Sydney. I was staying with my son. Beautiful white pillows, nice place. And I got <sighs> off. <laughs> I looked at my pillow and I thought, oh my gosh. This is not good. And uh, became upstairs. So like, okay, I'll clean my pillow off each night. I want to see what's there in the morning. Each morning I was like, oh dear. But for some reason I, I kept going because I felt uh, there was something unresolved. It was, it was making me look at, I guess, certain addictions to food, like this society conditioning that we have. I, it was really, really interesting because I found there were certain moments where, again, I <laughs> Maybe it's too much information, but I was having a father's blessing before my daughter was born. It was me and eight of my closest friends. We had a, a house for the weekend in the country. It was beautiful. And we were doing all sorts of like spiritual lovey-dovey stuff between the boys. You know, it was really, love it. It, was love, it was nice. And yeah, that's me in my zone doing that stuff. And I was in the middle of a fast. And that night we had this beautiful feast. It was just amazing food. And I wasn't eating. I went into my bedroom, curled up into the fetal position, and started crying. Right. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that's got nothing to do with gray hair. I'm just, just a it's, it, interesting it's side a strong, story. It is a strong social tie to it, and you know, being that deep into it, seeing that starts to kick up your uh, GI motility a little bit. Yeah, it was the social tie. It was this sort of importance we placed on what we put in our mouths, and it was really kind of hard to detach from that. It was quite painful kind of leads me into the next question around gut health though because i mean so much happens in the gut right i always tell people that come to me i've got this happening or i'm inflamed or blah blah, blah. i'm like how's your gut health like literally just start there every single time i'm not a physician i'm not a nutritionist a dietitian i'm just someone who people know is being interested in this stuff so i get asked a lot i always start with the gut gut gray hair balding any particular connection yeah i mean so connections that run sort of systemically, certainly IBS and IBD, inflammatory bowel syndrome and inflammatory bowel diseases can have, on a very granular level, can have malabsorption issues. And those malabsorption issues could be from fat, micronutrients, and we can have significant hair changes with that. So those, I would say that's sort of the obvious ones that can kind of come with it. But when you look at more like sort of IBS, IBD issues, and we look at sort of the pro-inflammatory states that tend to exist in other places, like, you know, there's links to just like acne, sort of, which is a, a disease of like the sebaceous gland, let's call it another sort of appendage of our skin. There's strong connections with our skin and what's happening in our gut and, you know, hair, oil glands, nails, all those things being tied to it. They're often good places to look to get clues. As I said, a, a window to what's happening inside. This can be like from on a very sort of like internal medicine level, really great external cues to look at what's happening, gut health, gut changes, and, you know, kind of getting a reflection and Nails, like I said, hair, you're always looking at sort of what, what's the most recent growth patterns look like? How does it change over time? Like, you know, you talked about during your fast, you could take one of your hairs and sort of look through the whole, right, yeah, check out your nails too. You can kind of look through your whole hair shaft <laughs> and get a little bit of a story laid out in front of you as to what's happening. Yeah, look at your nails and you have your last sort of six months of health right in front of you right there. Well, I know for me personally, I've had very small little ridges on my nails for as long as I can remember. And I've done a lot of work on my health and my gut health and I mean, I'm just not moving these ridges. I don't. No. <laughs> but that is malabsorption, though, right? 
It can be malabsorption issues. It can be inflammatory insults. It can be acute disease. It can be trauma to your nail bed sometimes. But if you're kind of getting them evenly through all your nails and they tend to be pretty consistent, it's probably a good indication that it's something a bit more systemic. Damn it. <laughs> they look pretty even. <laughs> okay, uh-oh. Yeah, that's something to look at then. Oh, I have been looking at it, man. Like, I've been staring at this for like 10 years and they just don't seem to improve. But I feel good. I feel great. Yeah. But those nails yeah. just don't seem to indicate the way I feel. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? It is. And again, it comes back to the body being a messenger and what is the body trying to communicate. And of course, gray hair being such an interesting one because I think people feel an element of shame or embarrassment around having gray hair, especially if you're a younger woman, right? I mean, I'm right. assuming that it's a thing for women to get gray hair. I think it's embarrassing for women. It shouldn't be. But again, you work in a field where, as a cosmetic surgeon, you're working in a field where people are coming to improve the way they look, but also the way they feel about themselves as well. What would you say to people who say, how about just aging gracefully, Cameron, Nick? Like, you know, so what? I got gray hairs at 30. And that's just the part of aging. And I'm happy to accept that and age gracefully. What do you say to that? Is it, are they missing something there? Of course, you can do that, but right, yeah, no, not at all. I think that you know, you just kind of hit it pretty well. That it turns into a little bit of where you're at with this sort of graceful process, the aging gracefully process. Because I challenge people with this a little bit sometimes. If they have issue, they're like, "Well, I'm just going to age gracefully." Well, you know, we do a lot of things to sort of alter what that aging process looks like for us, not just cosmetically, but even the way that we exercise and what we eat and how we're functioning. You know, we're doing those things to sort of not just change what we look like, but it's what we feel like too. It's in addition to sort of the cellular mechanisms that ride behind it. So my world in cosmetics is very sort of minimally invasive. I mean, I do surgery, but things are sort of very focused on rejuvenating more than they are like transforming. I'm not making people into something that they never were. We're just trying to take these little steps back in time of some of these little small changes that have happened. And here's just a great example of that because you know I can take growth factors out of your own blood, which is a really simple blood draw process. And in 45 minutes, have sort of a nice concentrated sort of little cocktail made of them and inject those into your scalp around your hair follicles and using your own growth factors, which come from your body, I'm able to change the way that your hair follicles are behaving. So, you know, I don't know what of that is, would be sort of shameful or different or could kind of turn people off, but it's really just a, a simple way to sort of use your body's in my opinion, your body's regenerative capacity to sort of do what it can do. We're just sort of extrapolating it to another location, biohacking, getting around it a little bit. And, you know, with functional benefits to sort of the strength structure of your hair, it looks better. And so, you know, I think everybody's in a different page with that a little bit on where they want to be. But my paradigm falls in that sort of domino effect. Same thing for skin. You know, if somebody has a ton of sun damage and has premature sort of almost like pre-skin cancer types of things. And, you know, that often gets reflected with, you know, wrinkles or whatever it may be that kind of like show some age too. You know, if we can do laser resurfacing to those spots on your skin and, you know, erase some of the wrinkles, erase some of the pre-skin cancers, nothing that's changing you or changing the way that you look, which is sort of maybe like cleaning up some of those little areas, which I would akin to intermittent fasting. You know, you're doing the same thing internally, trying to have some autophagy, some cleanup, we're just doing that on an external fashion too, with you know using light-based energy in that sense. So you know you can kind of tie a lot of those things together, but in the end, we're just trying to make people feel good, make people happy, make your. For most people, the most common thing that I hear is, "I want to like look the way that I feel," and I completely understand that. Mm, that makes sense. Yeah, I'm interested then correlation between diet and 
the way we look, whether it's our skin or gray hair. Or I think, of course, losing your hair can be very much driven by hormones, like obviously for men, testosterone, for example. But do you give dietary advice for these sorts of things as well? Is there a general prescription dietary for gray hair and all that sort of stuff? You know, before I get to like a general diet, I'm usually doing some investigating first. Like I said, with some of those sort of laboratory analysis, genetic analysis and things like that. And as you get into those, that's where you can really start targeting some nutritional advice that may be pertinent to, again, gray hair, hair loss being one of them. Almost always you get to a a bunch of different little avenues of like little small changes that are very amenable to sort of improve multiple cellular functions because graying hair and hair loss is not an isolated thing. Like I said, it's just a representation of slowing cellular function. So if that is, if that has a root cause, that same thing is going to be happening in our cardiovascular system or central nervous system or whatever it may be. And you know, you know, you mentioned hormones. For men, it's for women too, but especially for men, there's this androgen paradox, you know, the testosterone, the high testosterone levels, maybe, you know, making your muscle tone look good and making someone attractive and masculine, but at the same time causing sort of balding that's happening. And so, you know, we know that too much of that particular good thing in some areas can have a significant effect on what's happening, you know, in your scalp or something like that. And so as we step back and look at sort of laboratory levels and what's happening and what's changing in these areas. You can get a, your, your pulse on things a little bit better as to say, okay, well, here's some areas that we can sort of look at and change a little bit. And there's ties with all those, you know, with the androgen paradox in men, there's a medication called Propecia finasteride that you can take that kind of blocks this receptor that lives in our hair follicles. That receptor is what kind of gets this dihydrotestosterone as it gets too high. That dihydrotestosterone turns off our hair follicles so they don't work anymore. Well, you can take a blocker for that so that doesn't work anymore. Great. And it, it's quite effective for hair growth. But, you know, as I just mentioned, going back, that cellular mechanism exists in other places too, like our central nervous system. We have dihydrotestosterone receptors in our central nervous system. You block them for your hair great, but you're also blocking them in your central nervous system often. And that's why if people know much about this medication, that can be ties to depression, low libido, things like that. Things that just sort of make sense at some point. Oh, you're blocking your testosterone sort of interaction with your central nervous system, hair follicles, whatever it may be. And so a lot of those things, like I said, for me is a step back. Let's look at what's going on on multiple levels here and see if there's any little areas that we can kind of parade into a little bit. I guess you can always turn to nature as well. You mentioned that uh, particular drug, but also we spoke about sore palmetto before, which is also the DHT blocker. Right. Can they have, being a whole herb, a whole plant within its original matrix, can that actually have a similar effect without the detrimental effects as well? Can that be more, what's the word, adaptogenic almost? Yeah, or targeted. You know, the issue there is that those dihydrotestosterone receptors, this gets really sciencey, but there's a type one and a type two and they exist in multiple places. And it's the same type ones and type twos in your hair follicles that it is in your central nervous system. So saw palmetto has no more of an affinity for your hair one than your you know central nervous system as like a, like a pharmacologic option, like, you know, finasteride. And so the answer kind of is, you know, that's where you in reality, it's probably just a lower level blockade in all of those places than it is, you know, if you were to take the pharmacologic route. And so that's not generally something that I recommend people do because I think that your libido, sexual health, mental health far outweigh what's happening with, you know, sort of hair loss in men. And that's where I'll go to these more direct routes where I have really, really good options using PRP or using your own fat-based stem cells, or even like taking individual hair follicles and moving them to new places. You know, we talked about here at the front, like that's a really, really low invasive, highly restorative procedure that has like 
it's not surgery. It's hard to call it surgery. It's moving hair follicles around. And that can you know, be a game changer for a lot of people versus doing something pharmacologic or getting more systemic with it that may have other sort of outside effects because for men and women, lots of really healthy, strong, virile people are having hair loss or hair graying. And so these are ways to get around it, sort of using their own regenerative capacity. And those are the types of things that I really like to focus on. I love that because... It's very easy for us to turn to, say, that supplement I mentioned before, which is called, the thing's called Grey Escape or something. I'll link to that. But as you said, you can easily use your body's regenerative power. And I think surely that's got to be a better option than, than seeking something which has been created, I guess, based on theory. And so I'm sure there's testing and application there, but it's not designed for you, whereas a lot of the things that you do are just using your body, right? And I think that's it's a fresh way of looking at cosmetic surgery because I think when people think of cosmetic surgery, they think of nose jobs and all these sorts of things. It's just that sort of 1980s, 1990s, you know, stereotypical, but it's so much more than that. Speaking to you, I can see you've got a genuine passion for a holistic approach to improving that person's life, not just improving their skin or their hair. Exactly. And you know, I think that you kind of hit a few things that really kind of make me smile, which is the, you know, the eighties, the nineties. I think that a lot of our sort of imagery is stuck in those days because that was sort of where things were crossing the line quite a bit. Not that they don't now. We all see that. And but those are the bad jobs. You know, it's the good things that you don't notice, right? Where someone's had a little regenerative procedure, they've had some laser, they've had some fat transfer where they've used some of their own fat to kind of rejuvenate a little bit. And those are really simple, small, minor things where like I said, you're using a lot of regenerative capacity. And again, that's sort of my passion area. Um, and I really love those things. And hair is just like one of our greatest examples of where the power of that can lie and what it can do. Fat and hair are sort of like cousins. They're really both high metabolic demand tissues, really important in aging, both things that have like a lot of potential in them, a lot of stem cells in them. And so, you know, those are two areas that have just you know, the sky's the limit. We're not there yet with what we can do with them. But, you know, we're progressing pretty quickly as far as just simple ways to regenerate, utilize those tissues, revitalize them, and have sort of some really good effects. But it's a very simple anti-aging thing. You're talking about skin, facial health, hair, things like that. It'd be really great. I definitely want to talk a bit more about some of the things you do in your practice. Before we go that, there were some natural remedies I looked up just out of interest to see if you've heard of any of these, because I found them quite interesting. The first one was iodine. So just taking iodine of some sort, whether it's seaweed or taking a supplement, what is the role of iodine in, or iodine, sorry, in gray hair? Yes, iodine goes into that sort of cellular mechanism, mitochondrial Krebs cycle type of role again. This We mentioned a little bit earlier, like getting into the electron transport chain a little bit with salt. So my question was, oh, is that iodized salt? You know, because that kind of falls really heavily into that. You know, iodine also gets into, when we talk about iodized salt, that was actually more for like thyroid issues, but it's important in sort of hormonal balances too. So as far from a hair standpoint, again, this gets to me as like, well, is there a, are we having an issue with like sort of a baseline iodine intake? Uh, and if so, probably going to have a lot of other systemic issues too. As far as I know, Nothing as far as high dose, like over what would be necessary for other cellular mechanisms of iodine has a big effect on hair growth or grain that I could think of. Hmm, interesting. Okay. The next one was lemon juice and coconut oil rubbed into the hair. Oh, <laughs> uh, this. <laughs> well, the, the lemon oil is going to probably lighten it a little bit, right? Uh, especially if you're getting a little sunshine <laughs> yes. mixed in with that, you know, acid. But, you know, this is going to go back to that 
same story that we were talking about before with, you know, the monks rubbing butter on their scalps. You know, that's probably going to be more related to sort of microvascular circulation than it is to either of those products having some direct penetration. I could get really in the weeds about the fats and the coconut oil and things like that, but it's it's the manual rubbing. It's probably having any benefit there, if at all. You got to get your rubber brush with it and do that, probably make it work better. It just occurred to me that we're talking about the butter and the monks. Monks have shaved heads. I'm curious why are they, what's going on there? I know. I, I thought that too, but uh, it was, <laughs> I can't remember the exact backstory there, but it's something about a monk saying, I lost all my hair and this sort of, you know, butter massage grew it back. Maybe it was because he had okay. shaved it and it just grew back anyway. Yeah. Okay. Okay. What about potato skins to darken your hair? Ooh, that is new to me. I don't know anything about potato skins to darken your hair, but potato skins, the skin may have some, but it have melanin in it. I'm not sure if there's melanin in potato skins. I don't know about that one. That's an interesting thought. You never know. You could incorporate it into your practice. <laughs> right. There you go. Now, amla, which is Indian gooseberry, which is part of the, the well-known trifola trifecta of herbs in Ayurveda, one I've read quite a bit about, which is getting coconut oil and amla or Indian gooseberry and rub it into your head. Again, yes, rubbing. But I mean, I'm, I'm a fan of trifola and amla, so I'm curious. Could be something going on there. Yeah. And where I can think of that having the biggest benefit is if you had, you know, and again, this is where like a, a quick exam could do something where like, well, are you having some like little small inflammatory process that's happened around the hair follicles? Because when I've heard about those types of things, mostly it's been, there's this really common condition called seborrheic dermatitis that may have a little bit of a fungal component and may have a little bit of an inflammatory component from those fungal things. And so when you start talking about Ayurvedic medicine types of treatments for topically in those areas, Sometimes it can be like, well, is this a little bit antifungal maybe, or is this a little bit anti-inflammatory in a response to that fungus that may be changing the way that we're responding? And again, that seborrheic dermatitis like is really common. Even just like common dandruff is a reflection of some small degree usually of that seborrheic dermatitis. So if you're looking at a scalp, there's a small inflammatory component that may be contributing to some of that hair loss. That's where that can certainly come into play. Mm. Interesting. I see you're, are you wearing an Uru ring or some sort of bio I am. tracking device? Yep. Sadly, I had to take off my rings recently. This is really frustrating because I had an aura ring and I had a wedding ring. Now I've got neither. Now, I don't know if you're familiar. You can see my hands, right? This one here, yeah. I started developing during the juice fast, uh, Jupitron's contracture. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Yes, absolutely. Interesting. Yeah. Viking hand. Viking hand, right. Yep. Viking claw. Yep. Yeah, there's some injections you can put in there to kind of cause that to relax sometimes. I don't know if you've had that done yet. Well, it's not quite there. I just noticed it was a bit tender and a bit more firm. The tissue was a bit more firm. And I noticed that those those injections seem to be when it's starting to pull the finger and contract the finger. Now, both my parents have this. My dad has it really bad. He worked as a dentist and was constantly holding drills, ended up with hands that didn't open. So he had it really severe. And he had them operated on one hand is kind of open the other one's still a bit clawish so i know it's there's a genetic component but i've actually worked on decreasing you may find this interesting i did a three-week not a cleanse but i reduced oxalates and lectins for three weeks because we I, I looked at the copious amounts of what i would have been consuming during the juice fast i'm not concerned about lectins or oxalates like i believe in having a you know a variety of plants in my diet but i took that out and I do castor oil packs on my hand at night and I massage castor oil. And I also do, I think you'll enjoy this one. I do 60% DMSO, 40% magnesium chloride mixed in with some nascent iodine. 
and I rub that into my hand. Whenever I walk past in the kitchen, I see it, I rub that in. Now, I've been doing this, also taking serapeptase or uh, I'd have to look it up. I'll link to it in the show notes. Yeah, so the blocking collagen synthesis there, what's it, is it a degra- causing degradation there? What's happening? Uh, increasing circulation, actually, this particular enzyme, along with a biofilm-disrupting enzyme, which not for the biofilm disrupting, but because it increases circulation. So I've been doing these this protocol now for about four weeks. My hand has softened considerably. And I had a consult with a specialist hand surgeon. And he said, yes, it's Jupitron's, Jupitron's contracture. And he said to me, your disease is irreversible. <laughs> right? And I said to him, first of all, can you not call it a disease? Secondly, I'm going to reverse this. So, so far, it is reversing, I'm happy to say. So, there is definitely hope there. That's really great. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know how I spoke about that. Well, you know, it all kind of ties in as we're talking about, you know, even fibrosis, right? As you're sort of doing that manual change, you know, you can tie that into anything. But fibrosis is a significant portion of what happens in all of our soft tissues that can contribute to aging, including our hair. It all kind of ties together. Is there any other things you do in your practice for... Let's talk about gray hair specifically in your practice. If someone sees yourself or someone sees someone like you who has a similar skill set, what else can be done for this? Yeah. So, you know, this is one area that I treat myself for, you know, or have myself treated for and prophylactically even because, you know, my wife will like pick a gray hair out every once in a while, just that random one. But this is something that I do because I see it working all the time and it's quite impressive. And that's just, like I said, that simple growth factor, PRP. Uh, we make a sort of special one that has like some different concentrations and we, PRP is really popular across orthopedics and all kinds of, you know, cosmetic medicine, regenerative medicine. But when we're talking about hair, there's some specific concentrations that work really well and they're just turning back on the sort of stem cell bases that are slowing down. So you, you do get increased girth of your hair. You do get growth. You get thickening. Uh, but it turns gray hair to dark again. I mean, you have to be consistent and it has to sort of be something that, you know, takes a little bit of time, but it's it's really interesting and fun where, you know, my wife will pick out a gray hair and we'll look at it and the end of it is gray and the part that's been growing out of my scalp for the past four months is dark. So you can see the transition happen as that hair is growing out of your head. And it's so simple, so straightforward, so easy. And, you know, it's it's a really sort of great baseline way to go to have an actual change to your hair versus something like just dyeing it, right? And dyeing is a whole other conversation, which I'm not an expert in, but, you know, there's pros and cons to the different types of dyes out there too, some of which are relatively harmless. But then you have the opposite phenomenon, what I just talked about, where you have dark at the end and gray, you know, at the base. Those are the roots, right? And so if you can do something that's, you know, structurally changing the pigment in your hair for the long term, you know, that's, that's a huge win. And it's you know, honestly just increasing your overall hair health for all of it. So if someone comes to, to you to have a PRP treatment, which is platelet-rich plasma, right? So they're, you're drawing blood and then you're spinning it, centrifuge, is that right? You're separating it? Yeah, we centrifuge it out. And once we do that, it separates into by density because the centrifuge works you know, to make the heavier things sink. So we have sort of the area of it that we want and there's a gradient of concentration in there. And so we can you know, take whatever types of volumes we want to get sort of the concentration we're after. And once we have that, we can sort of select exactly, you know, if I'm doing it after a laser or after a surgery or for hair, those are all sort of different platelet concentrations and growth factor concentrations that I'm after to sort of have the effect that I'm shooting for. 
And then that goes into a really small, like an ins- smaller than an insulin type of needle. And we inject that sort of right into your sort of scalp around the hair follicles, which, like I said, live in that fatty tissue. And it's a really sort of painless, simple process to do. And, you know, with those sort of great effects, you can target the parts of your scalp that you're treating if you need to. But for the most part, with most people, we, we kind of can select a volume where we can really treat everywhere. So it does really, really well. And frequency of that ranges from for most people from like once a year to a really aggressive pattern of for male balding or for graying, maybe like once every quarter, uh, our hair cycle where our hair goes through sort of what has a growth phase and a resting phase and a falling out phase. For most people, that cycle is about three or four months long. And so we kind of try to treat it once per cycle in a really, really aggressive protocol. Treat it one time per hair cycle and kind of have your effect. Hmm. Interesting. So someone like myself who I don't have gray hair, but I don't want to get gray hair particularly. I'm not like, I'm not worried about the aging process. I feel like I'm doing everything to, to live a healthy life. But at the same time, I'd love to keep my natural hair color for as long as possible. Would you suggest being proactive with that and going now perhaps and just once a year? Yeah. I mean, it's a, you know, it's a great, so if I were going to do that, if I were you, where you're at, I would say, yeah, you could do it while you're getting your PRP drawn. I would probably use some other PRP for other things. Like I'd probably do something to my facial skin with it as well to sort of promote some growth there, whether that's a microneedling treatment or a laser or something to utilize some of that PRP afterwards. And then you can use some in your hair. And so you can kind of take, okay, well, I'm going to have like a little neck up, you know, regenerative session today where I'm going to kind of go through all those things. So yeah, doing that is, that's being very proactive. You know, it's not terribly inexpensive. It's not expensive in comparison to some other things either, but you know, the benefits of it are real. Now, my question then would be, if I were listening to this as well, sure, why don't we all just go do that all the time? Like, at what point does it become not worth it? Like a a 19-year-old who has perfect hair, should he be doing it? Well, no. I mean, at some point, you know, as we know that we're getting towards that sort of aging process as things are slowing down, like your hair is thinner than it was 20 years ago, just is. And so you can start sort of, you know, creeping and fighting that process that we know, I think I talked about this a little bit earlier, is kind of crossing or at least creeping towards that threshold where we're going to start to notice things. So just being ahead of it a little bit is always a good thing. Or like for me, where I have, you know, 0.5% of my hairs are gray, I'm starting to treat it now because 0.5 turns into five real quick. And I want to be, you know, proactive about it. So what about, um, you mentioned microneedling and something I've done for my skin, which I believe has had a really positive effect, but maybe I'm wrong, is those little derma rollers. And it almost seems like when I use it, and I don't use it maybe once a week max. And honestly, I can't think of the last time I did it. So obviously not once a week. But it definitely seems like I have this, it looks like I've got makeup on. It looks fake almost, like a, like a glow. Right, right. Yeah. Is that harmful? Is it temporary? What's the story with these derma rollers? Yeah, you just nailed it. So derma rollers are, you know, sort of usually a cylinder, right? That has little projections of, you know, micro needles on them that kind of roll and enter your skin. And they cause an injury to the superficial part of your skin. And as it does that, it causes swelling or edema. And that is the glow that you're noticing. That's what kind of looks fake. And it looks can look really good temporarily because that swelling tends to stretch out some wrinkles that you may have or some imperfections on the surface of your skin. It kind of like adds a little bit of volume back. And we know that we lose volume in our skin, our fat, our soft tissue, all of the soft tissue of our face loses volume. So it makes it look pretty good. 
The problem with derma rollers is that just based off the nature of how they work, like I said, that cylinder is rolling. And so as that needle is approaching your skin, it's entering at a tangent, entering and coming out. So it usually causes like a little tearing motion versus Mm -hmm. when you have like a professional microneedling done where it's a direct perpendicular enter and exit, right? So it's actually a little bit more of a targeted injury to a more pertinent area being a little bit deeper down in our skin, down in like our dermis. That's where we really want to have that injury because that's where we create more elastin and collagen tissue. We all talk about collagen. Collagen is so hot, right? But in reality, we want to make more elastin tissue. Elastin is the elasticity of our skin. It's what gives it the recoil. And that's the actual youth of our skin, right? Collagen is is what scars are made of. Scars are pure collagen. We don't want that sort of consistency, right? We want the supple nature. And so uh, something like a more perpendicular entering microneedling or even better yet, a laser is going to get more stimulation of those types of, of changes. The derma roller causes a injury to the surface of your skin. You get some swelling. The benefits are questionable in comparison to something like that that is you know, going to be a little bit more targeted after what you're you know, going to get a long-term benefit from. Mm. I might stop doing that. <laughs> by seek out a professional yeah i don't mean to say that they're evil but you know it, i think that they're not having as much benefit as you know uh, harm for some people okay so what about light then you mentioned the helmets the laser helmets what about infrared light well actually specifically the difference between say an infrared sauna and actual red light therapy because i mean both of those things are all the rage. You know, they're very popular. We've got a sunlight and a sunlight and sauna. I love it. I come out of it feeling amazing. And we also have a little infrared and right red light therapy device called a Hive from a company called Blue Blocks. It's just a portable one, very small, but really cool. What role could they play in, I guess, skin, hair, graying, everything, balding? What's that doing? Well, on a very baseline level, like just going back to the thing we've talked about a bunch of times is you have microcirculation changes, vasodilation, all beneficial, right? Hair, skin health, all those things are great with what they're doing. Infrared, being longer wavelengths, longer wavelengths penetrate deeper into our tissues. You know, we know that like some infrared can penetrate to our like myocardium, into our heart, right? Really, really deep into our tissue versus when you get to red, visible red light, that falls in a very narrow spectrum of what our eyes can see. Red light being at the long wavelength end of that visible spectrum and all the way at the other end, you got violet being at the shortest wavelength. Those are the fast little ones that do more damage. That's why infrared, long penetration, not much damage. Ultraviolet on the other end being like UVA, UVB from the sun, uh, changes that can cause like damage to our skin. So those are just the baseline energy profiles of that whole visible light spectrum. So when we have in the red light spectrum, we know that those wavelengths penetrate into our dermis, into the deeper parts of our skin, which is good. And that we have photoreceptors. We, have, we can photobiomodulate the way that our tissues behave. We can stimulate the cells in our skin that make collagen and elastin to make more of those. Those are called fibroblasts. We can stimulate them to make more of those with red light, right? Which is incredible if you really think about it, right? That's that photobiomodulatory effect. On the other end of the spectrum, when we have even like blue light, blue light can have an effect on our skin, but it can also have an effect on the microbiome of our skin, changing like what some of the bacteria are doing in our skin for better or for worse, right? And so any sort of like light-based spectrum at low energy levels can have significant effects on what's happening with our skin. At high energy levels, 
when we start to get to like more, I talked about the low level light therapy helmets, those tend to be more on the red spectrum, penetrating down to those hair follicles and causing changes. Uh, as we get into high energy, like more focal wavelengths, that's what a laser is. A laser is by definition, a single wavelength of light. Laser is an acronym, right? For light amplification by stimulated emission of radiation. So it's one wavelength of light that we've chosen. And that wavelength of light has a target in our skin or in our eye or in our bladder or wherever we're using it in medicine has a target, a specific target we call a chromophore. And we're using that wavelength to target that one specific chromophore to cause a change. That chromophore can be water, it can be pigment, it could be a blood vessel, all kinds of things, which is really cool and makes the sky the limit a little bit as to we can choose the wavelength that targets fat the best and go after that or whatever we're kind of looking for. So when we talk about like light-based rejuvenation, there's a huge figurative and literal spectrum of what exists there as far as wavelengths, but also then in sort of the energies that those things deliver, because lasers can be ablative, cause like pretty significant skin changes, but that it require a fair amount of healing to go through them, or they can be something that's a much lower energy, lower level, something like your red light that, you know, by definition is having a photobiomodulatory effect, but you're not having any downtime or anything afterwards. You're kind of like feeling good right afterwards, very different things. So a lot like the juve light, for example, how long would you need to sit in front of that to get any benefits for your skin off of your hair? Yeah, and this is um, this is going to depend on a few things. It's going to depend even on the hydration status of your skin, right? Like uh, if your skin has, if you rub an oil on yourself before you get in front of a light source, you're going to reflect fewer of those photons away. More of them are going to penetrate through. We use that therapeutically in medicine as we're trying to get things to penetrate through your skin light waves. And so, you know, usually you see the quoted like MED minimum effective dose of like 18 minutes or something like that in front of a, a red light to kind of get a good effect of what you're after, 18, 19, 17, something in that range. But it really depends. How close are you standing? What's the power source? What's your skin hydration level? All those types of things that go into it. It doesn't take too long. That's pretty quick. Yeah, that is pretty quick. I'm glad you mentioned hydration because that was one of the things I wanted to ask you because we're talking about some fairly simple, some fairly advanced things here. But in terms of the simple things we can do, I would say hydration and sleep mm-hmm. would be right up there, right? So for sure. let's talk about hydration because I think there's a lot of confusion about this. You can probably just see I was just drinking from, it's like a two liter thermos. I actually struggle to get through that every day. And that's maybe because I have a diet already high in water. I'm, I'm fully plant-based and have a lot of fruit and I live in a tropical climate. So, you know, salads and quite cooling things. I don't need a lot of water, but I do feel I'm dehydrated because to be honest, I forget to drink water. I, if I don't carry that with me, this is why I bought a two liter thermos. I just don't drink any water. Right. Talk to me about that. I mean, yeah, eight glasses a day. There's all these recommendations, three liters, four liters, one liter. I mean, everybody's different, of course, but there's got to be some baseline, surely. Right. And it's, um, you know, how much are you sweating and things like that that go into it? What's your, are you breathing through your nose or your mouth? Like all th- kinds of those things can affect what are, you know, sort of water losses. And that gets, mm. again, outside of my spectrum of expertise, but just from a medical standpoint, you know, uh, as we're talking about skin hydration, this is where people are like, oh, I, I drink my skin into hydration. Like, eh, kind of, that's kind of true, especially if you're sweating a lot because you're certainly hydrating your skin by sweating or by getting in the infrared sauna or something like that by, you know, kind of forcing fluid through your ecrine sweat glands to the surface of your skin. Great. Uh, but a lot of what happens there too is you're bringing oil to your skin surface because 
Like the dirty truth is the real hydration for our skin is fat-based, oil-based. Our skin is like a brick and mortar structure. And the mortar that's holding that together is like lipid-based. You know, it's more fat-based than it is water-based. That's what makes us sort of watertight too. So thinking that you're going to drink and get really hydrated skin is, eh, you know, not as probably true as sort of what's in your diet as far as fats go. And like in a more very obvious and direct fashion, it's like what's going on your skin surface as far as oily, thick so our best moisturizers for our skin are thick creams, ointments, things like that, that are really lipid-based and sort of sticky. That's going to moisturize and sort of trap things in the best versus something that may be thin and in a pump and has like more of an alcohol base uh, because that alcohol can actually strip some of your moisture away just by getting rid of some of that lipid. And so that gets into these two different divergent like topical skin things and sort of what your internal hydration or internutritional status is doing to affect sort of the structural barriers of your skin. But, you know, both important aspects. Interesting you said, you know, really rich lipid-based moisturizers because uh, where we live, just right on the beach here, it's winter, but it, it was hot down there today and the sun was strong and I was definitely feeling like I was getting a bit of burn. And there's this lovely couple down there, older couple who there every day, she's Swedish and she had this white cream of some sort in a glass jar. And I knew it wasn't, you know, a pharmaceutical or anything. It was, it looked natural, but it wasn't coconut oil. I said, what are you putting on your skin? It looks amazing. And it was just coconut cream, which I found interesting. Yeah. I've never actually done that before. And she said, here, try some. It felt amazing on my skin, you know, coconut cream compared to coconut oil. Because you think about sun cream, right? It sort of looks like right. coconut cream. And I'm just curious, that white color, there's something interesting about that. Yeah. And there's two aspects to that that could be important is, you know, when you're talking about like a sun cream or sunscreen, you know, the best ones that work that block the most rays are the physical blockers, the ones that have like titanium zinc, like the lifeguard with the white on his nose back in the day. That was like a very iconic image, right? That's like putting a shirt on your nose. Of course, it blocks all the rays. It does a really good job. And so if you're putting a cream on like coconut cream and you can physically see the white cream sitting on your skin when you're done, it's probably blocking some just light energy from entering your skin, right? So it certainly can be protective in that end. On the flip side, um, an oil, right? When you put that on your skin, we sort of just talked about this, where it actually can increase the penetration of some of the light into your skin because our skin, those little like dead skin cells on top that we tend to get can trap some air in them and can reflect light a little bit. And that's why when someone gets really, really sun damaged, one of the protective mechanisms of our skin is to kind of thicken a little bit. And we get a little bit like rough, crusty, and scaly on the surface. That's just our skin's attempt to like guard itself from what's happening by reflecting a little bit more light, giving ourselves a SPF of a two or two or four or something like that, just by creating some more thickness to that surface. So if you create a little bit of thickness with a cream, you can certainly improve that a little bit, but you can also sort of shut the process down by hydrating skin that is trying to protect itself by kind of drying out therapeutically a little bit. It's interesting. It's definitely something I'm going to keep trying is this coconut cream. It just felt good. You can eat it. and It's delicious. I was going to say it's delicious. It tastes amazing. And it, and it kind of looked nice. Like my skin was just like, oh, looks super good right yeah. now. <laughs> I'm a big fan of like utilizing things topically that you can also be eating, putting in your body. You know, I like that sort of paradigm. So coming back to simple things, sleep. Now we know that, well, hopefully the listeners by now know because we've been banging on about it for years is the importance of sleep. But of course, oxidative damage, you know, people who are not sleeping well tend to be probably staying up later than they should on screens, exposed to blue light, all these sorts of things. 
the role of sleep in anti-aging protocols surely must be one of your prescriptions, I assume. Oh my gosh, yes. And that's kind of where this aura ring comes in for me a little bit, whatever sort of, for me personally, something like this, just, you know, you already know when you sleep well or when you don't sleep well or what affects it, but just kind of seeing that in front of your face in a very like objective fashion is, you know, for me, at least behavior modifying. Uh, And so that's, you know, that's always a, a first place to go with people who are sort of experiencing fatigue. I do a lot of eyes as one of my sort of specialties as, uh, as far as anti-aging goes and classic. We all know that like, oh, I look tired. It's usually around your eyes where we start to notice those changes first. One of those reasons is because our eyelid skin is our thinnest skin on our body by quite a bit, the thinnest skin. Uh, when we measure it in microns, it's like 100 microns, so like 0.1 millimeter thick, really thin. And it sits right on top of a muscle. It doesn't have like a layer of fat underneath it or anything to insulate it. And so when you get some muscular edema from sleep, not sleeping, um, as your skin starts to age prematurely, it really does truly show up around our eyes a little bit. And so, you know, as, as cliche as it sounds, that sort of like, I don't look well rested can sometimes be fixed just by what you just said, resting a little bit more. And if it takes a wearable or trackable to go through that or just educating that, you know, late night alcohol, late night caffeine, whatever it may be, is probably going to inhibit some of these things too. Maybe you are physically laying in bed for eight hours, but sort of what's the quality of that sleep that goes with it. That's like the basic health and wellness answer, right? That's all plays into it. But on a completely physiologic level, deep down to that, we get into stress hormones, there's this pro-opio-melanocortoid receptor, this POMC, that's really important as we get increased stress hormones. That plays into even like our skin pigmentation because, you know, part of that is like a melanin receptor. And so ties get, as many things, ties get really strong as we start to get stress hormones uh, from cortisol changes, as, which can either, that's, that's a chicken or the egg thing sometimes. Are we getting cortisol changes because we're not sleeping well or are we not sleeping well because we're having cortisol changes elsewhere? Uh, but those can really play into what's happening aging, specifically skin aging. Uh, I find this stuff so interesting. I think it would be remiss of me not to ask you, I'm a surfer. I get a lot of sun. (laughs) I get a lot of sun. I rock climb. I'm outdoors a lot. I'm aware that my skin's going to be getting some damage. If you were to give me one recommendation for my skin, what would it be? I mean, your skin, you, you know, pigmentation is pretty even you got some light wrinkles you have some more coarse wrinkles which is normal with guys you know up and around your face and forehead and eyes especially it kind of creates a little bit of masculinity in a way that is again a whole another social discussion but i think if i were you because i am you to some degree in those sort of same situations is i would probably recommend you know i talked a little bit before about like microneedling and prp and that's a great option but I tend to be a low maintenance person when it comes to these things. Like I want to do something that is going to get me through a long period of time where I'm not doing it even every year, maybe something every five years or 10 years. And that's where I look into like a little bit of a laser resurfacing, whether that's ablative or non-ablative, whatever that means kind of gets selected by skin type, pigmentation, how much downtime you can generate, whether it's two days or two weeks. Um, But that's the direction I'd probably point you in as that sort of like in that, you know, late thirties, early forties, early fifties, the the guys that are falling in that range. This is not just guys, this is women too. It's just a simple place to go. Uh, You can't show me somebody over the age of fill in the blank 30, who you can't make their skin a little bit stronger, better, you know, more functional even, and they're going to look a little bit better sort of overall. And it's never going to make somebody look funny because it's your skin. We're just making it look better. There's no sort of like concern with not looking like yourself. All of those modalities are really let's call them natural, but they're either light-based energy, which is just using 
biohacking energy and using a lot of your regenerative capacity of your skin, whether we're helping it along with growth factors and PRP and stem cells, or whether we're just injuring it, letting it do itself. That's the regenerative capacity that we have. We're taking advantage of that. And when you do those things, you can get periods of time out of them that are indefinite, you know, two years, five years, 10 years, or you never have to do it again. And if you did it today, when you're 80 years old, your skin will still be stronger because you did it 40 years ago, whatever it is. And so really great long-term options that have sort of a very low input, low risk, and sort of high output to them. That's probably the direction I'd point you in. Yeah, I'd never really thought of that. Are there specific types of laser, for example, would one practitioner have one machine, another one has another one? Is there something to look for? What are your recommendations? Because it sounds like you could get it wrong almost. You could. You could get it wrong, or maybe let's just say like suboptimal. You could have a suboptimal outcome. So the answer is yes. There's a bunch of, I talked about those wavelengths. So those wavelengths get divided into categories like ablative and non-ablative and pigment-based and resurfacing and all these things. And within those, there are a million brand names on the markets, US market, Australian market, all kinds of different brand names that go into it. And so it's really hard to navigate when someone has like, I'm going to get this brand name laser and you go to Dr. So-and-so and Nate, you ask for it and they're like, well, no, I don't have that brand name laser, but I have something similar or better or whatever. It gets really into like, well, who are you choosing? Who's making this decision for you, right? Mm-hmm. Is this somebody who's a recognized expert in this field and has 10 different lasers at their disposal? So they're truly choosing the one of those that's the best for you? Or are you going to the Medispa that has one laser and coincidentally, it's perfect for you, right? Of course it is. And so I think a lot of it is choosing based off of choosing the right person more than choosing the device is the key and letting that person sort of help guide you through what your goals are, what the lowest hanging fruit, I like to use that term, like what's the lowest hanging fruit that you have? What's the like most amenable thing you have to treatment? That's just like, this is a simple thing, let's go after it. And then sort of what can you expect as far as like downtime and things that go with picking that low hanging fruit? Yeah, I think it's a good point, choosing the right person. And you can tell, speaking to you, how much you love what you do. I'm curious. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's it's so obvious, right? And I encourage people to, uh, we will post some video on social media for this interview, but I'm curious for you, how did you end up in cosmetic surgery in your medical studies? Yeah, you know, I went into medicine not really being sure what I wanted to do. I just knowing that I liked all the sort of different facets. I was a in my undergraduate training, I was a nutrition major. My mom's a nutritionist, so I sort of grew up in that environment of, you know, sort of health, wellness, kind of what you're putting into your body. For better or for worse, you know, you learn that as a kid where you go to your friend's house and they have all the soda pop and all the things you're not allowed to have at home. You learn like, I don't feel that good when I have these things, right? My mom was right. So anyway, I went into medicine with a, a nutritional background and, you know, you kind of choose along the way what you're going to do. And I really got heavily into the reconstructive sort of specialties. I have a very sort of right brain creative side of me that really likes to take a problem that's maybe three dimensional or spatial and try to solve it. And that's where, you know, these reconstructive cosmetic things really come in because it's very sort of like three dimensional and spatial organization and sort of how you take something and rearrange or make it sort of whole again. And then that sort of branched me into this really regenerative part of cosmetics that I really like. And so that bridged this sort of one end of me that's reconstructive, three-dimensional, and sort of the science-y regenerative things. And that's how I found sort of what I do. I'm curious then with the reconstructive side of things, because we've been speaking mainly about stuff we do by choice, but some people may find themselves actually damaged. Some sort of serious injury, a burn, some sort of impact, head injury. How much of your work actually is on really helping people get back to some sort of normalcy? with the way they look. A significant portion of it, you know, at this point, 
a lot of my practices, cosmetic, but some of those cosmetic things are sort of, you know, like you're saying, scar-based or reconstructing some changes. The the most, I think, like pertinent of those that I do regularly is like skin cancer reconstructions on the face where someone has a tumor that, you know, we are able to excise and then, you know, they're left with a defect or a hole or, you know, afterwards or part of their nose missing or their eyelid or whatever it may be. And then we go to reconstruct that. And that's a significant portion of my practice still. I think that those types of situations make me better at cosmetics and cosmetics makes me significantly more sensitive as I'm doing those reconstructive cases. So they play really well off of one another. And, you know, it's difficult to rebuild a nose from nothing. And so kind of taking that skill set and being able to apply it all over is very much a creative force and immediate gratification. And, you know, it's just that really that thing that we all kind of love to do. You did something, you see it in front of you. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah, I can't imagine how gratifying it must be to, to for someone to come in with something serious and then once they've healed to see the look on their face. You know, it must be must be very special. It is. Yeah, it's great relationships that get created. It's a ton of ton of ton of trust that goes into it in both directions really, but you know, that gets kind of you're entrusted with a lot of somebody's life in those situations. And in cosmetics as well. If somebody comes in and you're doing a, an eyelid surgery. It's like, well, that's a lot of trust placed in you to do those things. And so never something that's taken lightly or taken for granted, for sure. In researching you for this episode, I looked at your Instagram and I saw you were posting um, before and afters of people's eye, a lot of eyes. I think it was some sort of eye, what was it called? Some sort of eye challenge or something? The, the eyes have it, yeah. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> it was impressive because you could not tell that anything was done to that person other than the fact that they just looked younger and fresher, which was impressive. Yeah, I love that. Eyes are one of the things I do a lot of. And that sort of when you cross into the not just surgical, but like into the more cosmetic realm. And I love them because of what you just said, you can have so much change with such a small, something that like you're saying, you'd never notice that that person was different, but they just look better. You can even maybe pick out what it was. And that's socially based off the fact that our eyes are so powerful as a means of communication. Like that's how you know if somebody's happy or sad, if they're going to hurt you, if they're um, young or old, if they're beautiful, even babies who have no concept of beauty at all are recognizing like, is this my mom? Is this my dad? Based off this sort of central facial triangle, we have our eyes and our mouth mostly. And so we are truly hardwired to recognize really nuanced details in those areas. And if you understand how that works, you can really take advantage of small, subtle, focal targeted changes to have like really big impacts without anything major happen. And so that totally fits into my wheelhouse of things that I just love doing. Yeah, I think it was Catherine Shanahan from memory who wrote the book Deep Nutrition, and she's been on this show. That gave me a total different appreciation for beauty and the symmetry. And I loved some of the examples she gave. I think it was uh, Christy Turlington, I think it was and her family and her sisters and explained how each person had looked the way they looked. Was it Christy Tollington or was it someone else? Anyway, it was a, it was a beautiful, stunning uh, woman and her family, her siblings, they're all, I think, three sisters. And it gave me a different appreciation for when someone is aesthetically beautiful and not, and I'm trying to word this correctly because, you know, it's a very sensitive topic, but some people just are stunningly beautiful and everyone's beautiful in their own way but there are some people that turn heads and i realized reading that book there was as you said there was this symmetry this like literally this symmetry about the face and the eyes and everything the way it's at a lot of actresses and actors have 
the similar qualities. They look good on screen because they have symmetry. So I definitely understand what you're saying there. And I often look at my little daughter, Bambi, and when she, when she meets people to see who is she staring at the most, like who is she like connecting with, you know, and seeing if there's correlation between symmetry and it's so, so cool. Yeah. I want to shift gears a little bit now into some rapid fire. You've been super generous with your time and I know it's late there and you can track your uh, your sleep in the morning and how staring at this screen has impacted your sleep. Right, <laughs> but, exactly. Um, <laughs> what's bringing you the most joy right now? My family. Watching my seven, five, and four-year-old grow up and kind of learning along the way with my wife as we do this and something that we're like deeply passionate about doing, which is each other and them and just you know, kind of, you get some immediate feedback um, on what's happening, but also you kind of just know, like, I'm making mistakes, but I'm getting some grace and doing my best and kind of working really hard at this. It's it's like joy every day. And, you know, all the other things that come with having little kids, but it's so fun. I love it. I'm with you on that because I have a 15-year-old and a four-month-old and I'm blessed with two beautiful children and, and the I could literally burst into tears right now because just thinking of them, gives me so much joy and I just can't imagine life without them. It's just, you know, it's such a blessing. We're so, we're so lucky. Um, what's one thing you're working on or would like to improve within yourself at the moment? For me, it's uh, a lot of time management and mostly learning how to say no, delegate projects better. And that is for me often teaching based. I do a lot of teaching when we go through medical training after medical school, we do something called residency, which is where you specialize. And I have residents with me all the time. After we graduate residency, we do something called fellowship, which is sort of an optional uh, extra sub-sub-specialty years that we can do. And I have at any given time, two fellows who are with me for an entire year. You know, right now I have somebody from New York City and somebody from Philadelphia. And so, you know, they kind of come in these cycles and it's a labor of love because I truly love teaching. And I have you know, things to share and I get as much from them as they give for me. And it's just a really beautiful relationship, but also very straining on time, energy, effort. And there's like just physical and academic demands that come with that. And so for me, it is, it's a discussion with my wife every year. Like, are we ready to do this again? You know, this is the season where our new fellows are starting. It's like, are we ready to kind of start over and start the whole energy investment that goes into it. But it's not like raising kids, but at the same time, you get to see this sort of mentor-mentee relationship and watch them sort of grow into the physicians they're becoming. And for me, plant themselves throughout the United States. And uh, it's a beautiful thing. So I love that too. But, you know, as I'm sitting here, you know, I can think of my to-do list that has a lot of academic like papers and things to do on it that are not bringing me joy, but become as a byproduct of those other things. So I guess that's a long answer to say that I'm really working on how to fit fit that into my life better. It seems like you've got very good communication with your wife then. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. It's important. I mean, poor communication in a relationship can make life very challenging, you know, really challenging. So when I see someone who has that within them, I applaud it because it's actually a relatively rare trait to see couples who really have that crystal clear communication. So that's a beautiful thing. That's really doing it a lot of justice. I mean, it's, it's, it's normal marriage communication with um, just trying to be as open as you can, you know, and trying to get those things out there because, you know, you realize what the hard way or the easy way you're going to realize that that communication is important at your time. As a father, I think, or a mother, you quickly realize that parts of your time are yours and parts of them don't belong to you. Uh, or shouldn't at least, and are better spent elsewhere. So it's, you know, delegating that time appropriately. Let's pretend you have a magic wand 
and you can put one book in the curriculum of every single high school around the world, which book do you choose? Oh man, uh, I love this. I love this question because it makes it leads me down so many roads of entertainment, self help. But you know, I, I can get into some spiritual things. I'm going to stay away from those because I, you know, I love those. But my favorite book in high school is The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. I just love that particular book, and I think that I would make sure that every high school student sort of gets to sort of experience that literary journey. I actually don't really read fiction at all anymore. And that's just, I've evolved away from that to just be more into sort of nonfiction history, things like that. But when I was in high school, that book was very instrumental to me in developing a love for reading more. I was not a voracious reader until around that time. And so that really kind of turned me on. And uh, I wish that I could turn every sort of high school student on to like that sort of love for reading and sort of appreciating the subtle details that serve you so well with other things later in life too that come with a story like that. That is such a good point. I have read nonfiction for a long time. And the last year or so, I've switched to fiction in the evenings. Two reasons. One is I'm actually writing a fiction novel myself, which is really exciting. I'm two thirds of the way through and I'm actually quite surprised. It's actually really good. <laughs> but Awesome. I've always liked to write, but I've never really had, I've never sat down and put it into a start and an end and really planned it out. And for this particular book, I really took six months mapping out the actual storyline and the character development and, you know, studying writing. It is super challenging. Like it is really hard to write well. I hope I'm doing it justice. I think it's going to be a great book, but I agree with you. I think having kids fall in love with reading is so important. And I want to throw a book in there for people to check out to fall in love with reading, which I think teenagers would love, and that is Unbroken, a well-known film that Angelina Jolie produced or directed, sorry. But the book itself was written by Laura Hillenbrand, um, who won the Pulitzer Prize for another book called Seabiscuit about the horse. And Unbroken just blew my mind completely on how good someone can be at their craft, but also how extraordinary human humans are. And Louis Zamperini in that book was just Actually, an inspiration to me reading that book, the resilience of him was just mind-blowing, but the power of storytelling, I went and then read Seabiscuit. Now, I don't have particular interest in horse racing or you know, any experience with it, but I could not put that book down. And I was reading certain races and things, and I literally yelled when I was reading it because I was so in the moment, right? So I agree with you. I think falling in love with reading is so important. And luckily, my son loves reading, and I think it's, you know, it's a forgotten skill for many kids because of technology. So I agree with you. I did get the privilege of meeting Louis in Los Angeles before he passed away. Did you? Uh, he was a now that he's now that he's passed away. I can say he was a patient of ours when I was in my medical training at UCLA in Los Angeles. And uh, wow. remarkable, remarkable! Such a what blessing man. to get to spend time with. Oh my goodness, it was very fun. Yeah. And you've read his book? Read the book? Pre-fame. I did, yeah. Read the book, watched the movie. And this was all before he, you know, kind of became famous because that all was happening towards the end of his life. But yeah, remarkable. I mean, I've got goosebumps. That always tells me I'm onto something because, or God bumps, people call them. I really do recommend anyone, even if you don't think, and it's not fiction, it's actually nonfiction, but it's it feels like you're reading a fiction novel. So check out Unbroken by Laura Hillamrand. It is extraordinary in the story. It gives you some serious perspective, that's for sure. Especially right now, what we're all experiencing right now. It's good to have perspective. Okay, a few more quick questions. These are genuine rapid fires. What's the one most important thing we can do for our health? One of the most important things we can do for our health. 
sleep. Yeah, I'm so with you on that. What's one of the most important things we can do for our wealth? I'm going to say make quick decisions. Hmm. Pivot. <laughs> Pivot. Make a bunch of quick ones. Yeah. What's one of the most important things we can do for our love? Foster it and appreciate it that you get to give it and that you get to get it both. I've asked this question of myself a lot lately. What can I be doing right now in this bizarre time we're in? And how can I contribute to this sort of change I would like to see with what's happening in the world? It keeps coming back to being that change and just giving love wherever I can. And I, I don't think I've been particularly amazing at that, but I'm aware of it and wanting to give much more love to people. And you know, that's for me how I'm trying to navigate this time. Last question. You've been very generous with your time, so I want to pay back a little bit. What can myself, Melissa, and the listeners do to serve you today? Oh, my goodness. You know, I'm just happy to chat and and speak about things that I love speaking about, which is probably the real answer to how to improve your wealth the most is be doing something that you love to do. So, you know, just you can go, if it interests you, go check out my Instagram, social media channels. I put a lot of thought and time into that as far as just sharing what, what's going on as a, from a family standpoint. And, you know, a lot of the questions you were hitting on, you know, kind of tie into those really well. And then a lot of medicine on there, a lot of different types of medicine as far as regeneration, cosmetics and reconstruction. So go check it out if you're interested. So your handle is at chesnut, that's C-H-E-S-N-U-T dot M-D, at chesnut dot M-D. We'll link to it in the show notes. It's been amazing. This has been a really fun chat. I must say, like, I love this stuff, but this was way more fun than I could have imagined. And I think partly because I feel like we're very similar in lots of ways. And I really appreciate the work you're doing and, and the time that you spent. It's almost 11 o'clock there. So, you know, I'm, I'm aware of that sacrifice. So thank you very much. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's been an honor. Thank you so much, mate. All right. Well, take care. Have a good evening. Don't forget to head to comparisonitis.com to get your copy of my latest book and all the free goodies that go with it. I cannot wait for you to read it and to hear what you think. OMG. Guys, that's all I can say to that is O-friggin-MG. That was jam-packed with so much cool stuff. Where do we even begin? Well, be honest with me. How many of you are going to be rushing out tonight to massage your head? Massage your head. Anyway, what a seriously lovely guy. Can you just tell how much he loves what he does? Like he has found his passion, his purpose, and that is obviously a very common thread with the guests on this show. But I just thought he was a dude, an absolute dude, and had such a great chat, so grateful when you book in a interview that's supposed to go for like an hour, maybe a bit more, and they end up staying for like almost two hours, you know you're onto something good. So there is so much gold in this episode. I love just sort of the reminder that our body is the messenger, right? So yes, age gracefully. There is a strong message amongst all that. But also let's not forget what our body's telling us when we do start sprouting some gray hairs or losing some hair, because that's actually not that natural at certain ages. So uh, I've just got to sit with this now and just integrate all this information because there's so much there. I'm going to be re-listening to it, writing down some tips, but definitely continuing with my little massage routine. We'll be linking to that in the show notes, guys. There's so much in this. Holy moly, like the show notes are going to be so packed. It's ridiculous. Make sure you head over to melissaambrosini.com forward slash 413 to check out those show notes because 
yeah, you want to be jumping on some of these things because they are powerful, simple. Lots of them are free, cheap. Anyway, so guys, I hope you really, really love that. Please make sure you are subscribed to the podcast. I keep saying this, but at the moment, there was a bug in the podcast app and we did lose some subscribers. So if you haven't been seeing these episodes popping up into your feed, it's because you were unsubscribed. So make sure you go and subscribe right now and come and follow Melissa on Instagram at Melissa Ambrosini and myself at I am Nick Broadhurst because I don't know, why not? But also because we do giveaways for every single episode and some of these actually all the giveaways are freaking awesome. So make sure you follow us because the giveaways are all done on our Instagram channels, as well as we're doing some Q&A sessions now as well. And you can submit your questions, but you'll only have your chance to submit your questions on Instagram. So make sure you go and follow us today. And don't forget today to look up, see the beauty around you, see the beauty within you, be gentle with yourself, be gentle with others. And right now, Have compassion for others, their choices, and their sovereignty. And above all, have a beautiful day. I love you heaps.